Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning, you can try to stay with me. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. And this is somewhat of a top, this is in fact a topical message. So we'll be looking at lots of scripture. We'll be putting them up on the screen for you as we go. Isaiah chapter 7. And we start off with one of the most, if not the most, astounding prophecies, predictions of Jesus' coming found anywhere in the Bible. Where we're told in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Over in chapter 9 and verse 6, for, uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David... And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then to the narrative itself in Matthew chapter 1. And you uh, go all the way down to verse 18. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, notice the very careful wording here, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary to be your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And we just read this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The Christmas story is a story of hope. For those who originally experienced the story, that cast of characters, many of which will come upon this morning, those prophecies written from the time of the Garden of Eden all the way up to hundreds of years before Jesus came, all of those predictions were literally fulfilled. In other words, for those who originally lived the Christmas story, Jesus was a hope that was seen, past tense. So what is hope? What does that mean, to hope? My wife, just the other day, was at a funeral of a relative uh, from where she grew up. This man was a 
passionate follower of Jesus, died tragically in a car accident, 48 years old, beautiful wife and family, left behind. And uh, at the funeral, the, the wife who knew my wife, as soon as she saw my wife amongst the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that were there, she grabbed my wife and she said something like, I need to spend time with you. She said, I see your joy. I see that it's evident that you've, you've, you have happiness again. You give me hope. That's what she said. Now, what was that woman, what did she mean when she said to my wife that my wife gave her hope? Was she saying, I know now that I'll have a husband. I'll, I'll get remarried someday. Is that what she was saying? I don't think so. No, what she was saying was, you've been where I'm at now. You've walked in my shoes. You've come through this pain. Your life is an open testimony of going from darkness into light. And therefore, you give me hope. Which is the exact same thing that a number of you need. In fact, all of us need here this morning. We need hope. In fact, Isaiah even describe the people of Jesus' day just before he came in a very similar manner. When he said this in chapter 9, he said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This is what some of you need this morning. Light to shine into your darkness. To go from hopeless to being hopeful. The Apostle Paul wrote to a small church and said, I don't write to you as people who have no hope, but to those who have hope. It's all tied into your relationship with Jesus, whether or not you have it. Hal Lindsey, who wrote a number of books back in the 70s and 80s on prophecy, on those predictions of Jesus and the ones that we still wait for. He's uh, credited as have, having said, a man can live about 40 days without food and about eight days without water. You can go about three minutes without air, but you can't live one second without hope. Which is very ironic to me that Hal Lindsey was credited as saying that because it was one of his books that I read that talked about the coming of Jesus Christ that put for the first time in my life a sense of divine expectation of hope that Jesus would return and I would be released. Aren't you looking forward to release someday? I am. And that he, some of his books were the first thing to give me that sense. Indeed, the very prospect of Jesus' coming again is called the blessed hope in Titus chapter 2. Jesus is called the blessed hope. In Romans, in our study, when we return to that next year, we're going to see in chapter 15 where God, who's called the God of love in other places, is called the God of hope. In other words, all of our experiences and all of our expectations that are true and sure come from him, our God of hope. Paul defines hope in the book of Romans 
in the 8th chapter. We saw it a couple of months ago. And he was actually in referring to the context of our aching, aging bodies, where he writes that we're still waiting for our redemption. By the way, did you know that? If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been redeemed, but your body hasn't been redeemed yet. Did you know that? And I'm looking at you, a lot of your bodies still need a lot of redeeming. Mine needs a lot of redeeming. That's the context he's talking about. He's, we're groaning within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And it's in that context that he's, this is a hope that we have. And then he basically defines what hope is because he says in chapter 8 and verse 24, for in this hope are we saved. Now, hope that's seen, that's not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? That's a rhetorical question. Nobody. But if we hope for what we do not see, watch this, we wait for it with patience. So again, what is hope? From God's perspective, that is. The Greek word in the New Testament is the word elpis. This word is a very simple word, just pregnant with meaning. It flat out doesn't mean what you think it means when you think about hope. What comes to your mind? The word for hope in the New Testament means to anticipate with certainty. That's what it means. It means to anticipate. It's an expectation of that which is sure, that which is certain. And that's why it is so contrastive with the way we refer to hope. My wife was in the first service. And she was thinking to herself, I got to get out of here as soon as the service is over, I'm hoping I can get to Living Waters in time for the children's program, which a number of our grandkids are in. Now, when she thought that, I'm hoping, did she have this anticipation of certainty? No. She's hoping she'd get there. This is the same way you use the word hope. I hope to get off by 5 o'clock. I hope he gets better. I hope to get that job I applied for. What are we saying? We're saying, I have no certainty. I'm praying about it. I'm hoping. That is not the meaning of the word hope, used there in Romans chapter 8 and other places. It, in, instead, it means an expectation. When we hope the way the Bible hopes, that means we are certain it's going to take place. Whether it happens today or tomorrow, next week or next year, we know it's going to happen. It's like the old hymn writer says, may, which, referring to Jesus' return, maybe morning, maybe noon, maybe evening, maybe soon. He doesn't know, but he knows this, Jesus is coming again. That is a hope, that is a certainty. Bank on it. Take it to the bank, spiritually speaking. It's important for us to know that whatever, whenever the Bible promises something, that, in essence, is hope. The expectation of that which is certain. And in that sense, it's very much akin to faith when we talk about hope. In fact, hope has a power all of its own to change your life. Did you know that? So here's John who says, you know, 
And now, little children, it doesn't appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. How awesome is that? That's, a, that's the expectation of Jesus coming back. So then he says, he says, that's a hope we have. And so he says, everyone who has this hope in him, who thus hopes in him, does what? He purifies himself the way he's pure. The kind of hope that God puts within those who follow Jesus has life-changing elements intrinsic within it. And that means it's within you if you know Jesus. So how does hope fulfilled? Now we're talking about a hope, first century hope, people waiting, hovering in darkness, waiting for that great light. How does that hope that they saw fulfilled in Jesus bring hope to you and me? Let me suggest five different ways this morning. Here's the first way, okay? The prophecies of Jesus give us hope. When we talk about prophecy, we're talking about predictions. We're talking about divine predictions. We're not talking about Nostradamus. We're not talking about, you know, some guru out there. We're talking God's promise that always comes true. And those prophecies of his coming come on the heels of our greatest need. Oh, by the way, what is your greatest need? I'll suggest to you that your greatest need is forgiveness. Your greatest need is to be brought near to God. And the only way that's going to happen is through Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can take your sins away and give you a standing with God and make you a child of God. Would you agree with that? That's your greatest need. And so how did sin come into the world? Well, most of you know the story. If you don't, you can read about it in Genesis chapter 3. So here is the first couple, Adam and Eve. They're given clear direction, and they defy the living God. Eve does. She gives to her husband, Adam. They take of the fruit they're not supposed to take of, and they fall into sin. And this just begins in staccato-like fashion. God just starts meeting out all of these judgments. By the sweat of your brow, you'll work the land you're going to have kids in pain. And if you know the story, the serpent, who was Satan, who was, Satan was indwelling, the serpent gets caught up in this as well, the curse that is. On his belly he will go the rest of his life. So you don't see any more upright snakes any longer walking around. But then God says, to the snake, the serpent. He says to him this. He says, I will put enmity. That's a fighting. That's, that's, that's variance. That's anger. That's that which comes between people. Enmity between you, the serpent, and your followers, and the woman, and between your seed, that is your followers, and her seed. By the way, last I checked, women don't have seed. This is what theologians call the proto-evangelium. That's a fancy word for the early gospel, the early sort of whisper of the gospel, of the good news which was to come. 
That w- and so here's the deal. And between your seed, Satan's seed, and her seed, that is seed that would be given to her. Will we remember how that came? Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the Spirit of God overcame Mary, overshadowed her, and impregnated her. Right? With the seed of God that would become the Son of God, that would become the Savior of men, you and me. He'll bruise your head. That's what Jesus did to the serpent, crush the head. The Son of Man came to destroy the works of Satan, amen? He'll bruise his heel. That is, he took a look at Jesus, but it wasn't enough, amen? This is an early glimpse of the hope that we have all the way back when sin first came into the world. And not only the prophecies just start unfolding, we don't have the time to unfold them all, but at the very end of the book of Genesis, when Jacob is laying hands on all of his sons and, and pronouncing blessings upon them, he takes a hold of Judah and he says, out of your tribe is going to come the one who will rule. Isaiah, or rather Genesis chapter 49 where it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, for, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is a prophecy that the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, would come from the tribe of Judah. Later on, David is the king, and he so much wants to build a house. We saw this at Thanksgiving time for God. God says, can't do it. You're a man. You got bloody hands on you. You can't do it. I'm going to give that to Solomon. In fact, but I'm going to give you a house much greater than a physical house. I'm going to build a house. I'm going to build a lineage. I'm going to build, I'm going to put within you a family structure that will produce my own son. And so Jesus doesn't just simply come from the seed of a woman, from the tribe of Judah, but he comes from the family of David. And if you read Matthew 1, the first 17 verses, he clears all those hurdles. But then you've got that prophecy we looked at in the, in the reading at the beginning, the greatest of all prophecies in Isaiah, where Isaiah says, the virgin will conceive. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. The Hebrew word for virgin in Isaiah. Now, remember, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. Hebrew has a little more stretch to it. Let's just say that, okay? So the word virgin in there is the Hebrew word alma, and it does mean maiden, and it has within it sort of implied a a chaste woman, a woman who has never had sex with another man. It's implied, it's not overly specific, and so liberal theologians love to go to that and say, well, it just means this some woman, doesn't mean anything, doesn't mean virgin necessarily. Except that 200 years before Jesus came, they all spoke in Greek. The Hellenists had taken over, and so it was important that because so many could not read Old Testament Hebrew, the Bible, the Old Testament Bible was translated into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was written in Greek so that people could read it. 200 years before Jesus came, and when they came to this passage in Isaiah 7, 14, they took the word in Hebrew, Alma, and they translated it into Greek, Parthenos, 
You don't need to remember those words except to know this. The word parthenos, it means virgin and nothing else. And so when you come to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, when the angel's talking to Joseph who's thinking, i got to get rid of this woman. She's obviously been unfaithful to me. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. You can take her as your wife because it's just as the Scripture says, and he quotes from Isaiah. This is a quote from Isaiah in the New Testament in Greek, just as you have it in your Bibles, behold, the virgin Parthenos shall conceive and bear a son. They'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All of this is, is all this means is God affirmed the fact that there was this prophecy 700 years before Jesus came that he would come by way of a virgin, which is a miracle, a flat out miracle, amazing. And thus Joseph could know that his wife was not unfaithful. His God had been very faithful. And we saw in the, in the reading Isaiah, another prophecy, chapter 9, that this child that was born to us, this son that was given to us, would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. The government will be on his shoulders of his kingdom. There'll be no end. These are prophecies of Messiah. And by the way, a prophecy that we have yet to see fulfilled when he reigns forever. That's part of our hope. Micah chapter 2 tells us that Jesus is not simply born of the seed of the woman from the tribe of Judah, of the family of David, but he would be born in the town of this little hamlet called Bethlehem. And we're told in Micah chapter 5, again, about 500 plus years before Jesus came, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who will rule, be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Now, that's not just a great prophecy of Jesus' whereabouts where he would be born. But what I love about this is it also shows the power of unbelief. This verse does. Not so much this verse, but those who studied it. Do you remember the story, as if we'd have kept on reading in Matthew chapter 2, uh, the wise men show up. They go to Herod. They've been looking for years. They've been following the star. Remember the story? They come to Herod and they say, hey, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. The Bible says Herod was disturbed. Let me tell you something. When Herod was disturbed, heads rolled. But he feigned like he wanted to come and worship Jesus too. Remember that? Well, you know, um, tell me, where is this? He gets his priest. He gets his scribes, according to uh, Matthew 2. Gets them together. He says, tell us, where is this king supposed to be born? And let me know so I can go worship him too. Well, the priests and scribes that go to work. Oh, that's an easy one, Herod. We are the students of the Bible. We understand these things. The Bible tells us, and right there, Matthew chapter 2, they come and they say, well, in Bethlehem of Judah, for it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They nailed it. They got it. They knew exactly where Jesus was to be born. And then those priests and those scribes, along with the shepherds and along with the wise men, all ran to meet the King Jesus, right? That's not what happened. 
In fact, if those priests and scribes who knew their Bibles, who knew what to tell Herod, who knew where Jesus was to be born, if they had really believed their study, they, had, they would have made a beeline to Bethlehem. Your nativities wouldn't just have, you know, wise men and shepherds. They'd have priests and scribes too. But they don't. And the reason they don't is because they, under, they had a head full of knowledge, but hearts full of sin. And that probably describes some of you here. You've got knowledge. You've been raised in, in a Christian home, perhaps, some of you. You've been taught the truth, and it's all here. But your heart's not in on it. And you know it because your life hasn't really been changed. And you know that because you don't really act on faith. When you're told something, the Scripture tells you something, it's like, yeah, that's, that's great. You'd rather debate it maybe with somebody. But not necessarily obey it. For you who believe the hope of these prophecies fulfilled should fill and fuel your hope that Jesus Christ is going to come again. They fuel mine. Do they fuel yours? Well, the prophecies of Jesus give us hope. Here's another thing that gives us hope. The lineage of Jesus gives us hope. Matthew chapter 1, again, the first 17 verses. I'm not going to read them. I mean, it's just like, oh my goodness, what a boring read. It's a genealogy. You know, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. By Tamar. By what? By who? By Tamar. Wasn't she the woman who sort of prostituted herself with her father-in-law? Yep, that's her. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz. By, by who? By Rahab. Okay, what was an act with Tamar was a profession with Rahab. She was a harlot. She was a prostitute. And on and on the line goes. You skip down to verse 8. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And he goes on. And he mentions, eventually, he gets to Bathsheba. But he doesn't name her. Instead, he, he talks about the wife of Uriah. In other words, this whole list is a list of sinners. By the way, last I checked, that's what we all are, right? And some of them notorious. Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, Jeconiah, who was actually cursed. He's, found, he's in the list. Why is this? All over this room, within this room right now, some of you are living in sin. You're contemplating it even now. You live a lie. Some of you are living in immorality. Some of you are committing adultery. Some of you are struggling with homosexuality. Some of you are involved in some form of thievery and rebellion and blasphemy. 
You could probably find elements of every one of those within every one of those individuals on this list. And why do I point that out? Because Jesus came to move right into our lives. He didn't come to a per. He did come along the right line. But he came to relate to you and me. He came to come into your life to give us hope. We know that the Holy Spirit protected Jesus from the transference of sin. But just the same, he came to live amongst us to be tempted in all ways like us, never to sin. This Does this not demonstrate God's great love for you and I? God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love the way Eugene Peterson describes Jesus' coming in John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. That's what Jesus did. This is what he did. His lineage gives us hope. A hope that says, that has Jesus saying, I'm coming to your side of the town. I'm coming to your place, to your home, and I'm going to make your home my home. And this gives us hope to know that Jesus didn't just come to, to save the good guys. In fact, he would say later on, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick, I've, come, I've not come to save. I haven't come to heal the righteous, but sinners who understand their need for repentance. This should give you hope. No matter who you are, no matter where you're at in your life right now, no matter what struggle you're going through in your walk in this world in sin, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That means you, that means me. And that gives me hope. Here's a third reason, a third truth, rather, about Jesus' coming that should give us hope. The struggle of Jesus to come into the world itself gives us hope. I mean, you just look at all, of, all that took place. You've got Joseph, you got Joseph struggle with, you know, with what to do when he's got a fiance that he loves who's pregnant. You've got God moving tens of thousands of people all over the land of Canaan to get one little couple and their baby to be born right in the right place at the right time. You've got Bethlehem. You've got the story of the wise men coming and, and, and following the star. You've got satanic attempts to destroy the Christ child. In fact, if you were to read Revelation 12, you'll see that Satan is, is depicted as sitting there, figuratively speaking, ready to devour the Christ child as soon as he's born into this world. And so what you have actually in Herod is Satan, his fury came through Herod. When he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, he went in and did all the killing. Of course, we know Jesus escaped that, the flight to Egypt, the trip back to, to Nazareth years later. And then later on, I mean, you think, well, when you read through the narratives in the Christmas story, sometimes you think, man, that was a lot of close calls there. But it wasn't as if it all just went away. 
this business of this young teenager getting pregnant, out of wedlock, virgin? Yeah, right. Yeah, really, seriously. So Jesus enters into a, a debate with his major detractors one day, and of course they're losing as they did every debate with him, right? And so what do they do? If, you, if the facts don't support you, vilify the guy. You remember how they did? They said, well, we weren't born of sexual immorality. Have you ever read that? You know what that one line tells me? That tells me that he never lived it down. That tells me that it was always hanging out there. The accusations were always there, untrue as they were. But this should give you hope. In your struggle, in your life, with false accusations, even old forgiven sins that kind of conjure back up once in a while, right? Somebody points it out to you. You sometimes point it out to yourself, right? Instead of going to the gospel, instead of going to what Jesus has done for you, you think about your own sins. You think about all those awful things you've done. And you've got the accuser of the brethren who accuses us night and day. That's what the writer of Revelation says. We have the hope of the one who struggled before us, not with sin, but certainly with sin's accusations. And he never sinned, and he becomes the great emancipator of our souls, right? Jesus Christ, who is the one we go to. We have a great high priest who... who can sympathize with our weaknesses. That gives me hope in my struggle. Does it not give you hope? It should. And how do we overcome him? Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11 tells us you overcome him by the blood of the lamb. That's how you overcome him. You overcome him by, the, by your changed life, the word of your testimony. And you don't care whether you die in the process because if you die, the struggle is over. And so just the other day, when four children, all under 15, were taken outside by these demonically led radical Muslims in Iraq, and before their moms and dads took those children, this is just two days ago, and defying their moms and dads said, to, their, to, to the kids, turn away from Christianity and acknowledge Muhammad as the prophet. Every one of those four teenagers said, we love Yeshua, that's Jesus. We love Yeshua, we will always love Yeshua. And every one of them lost their heads. Every single one of them died. And we say, how awful for those kids. Are you kidding? Their struggle is over. You feel for the parents. You feel for the families. But these are the lot of those who overcome the evil one in their struggle by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they do not love their lives to the death. And God will give you the grace to do the same. The struggle of Jesus just coming into this world, much less living, should give you hope.
The theology of Jesus' birth should give you hope. And when I talk about theology, I'm talking about sort of just, the, just taking the patchwork of Scripture. Just taking all, just the whole truth of the gospel, of the incarnation, Jesus coming into this world and studying it from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account to going over to studying Philippians chapter 2 or Galatians chapter 4 or breaking out those Christmas hymns. There's tremendous theology in those Christmas hymns that talk about Jesus Christ being born, God, man. And John loves the theology of Jesus as God becoming man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, moved into our neighborhood. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The theology of Jesus' birth says that God became man while retaining his godness. He didn't become less, right? There's an ancient writing from the first or second century. It goes like this. I love it. This, this individual wrote this like it was Jesus writing it. It goes like this. I am what I was, hyphen God. I was not what I am, hyphen man. I am now both God and man. And this is why I've shared with you, those of you who've been with us every year, this little brain twister, but it's true. At his incarnation, Jesus did not become less than God. He became more than God. He became God-man. And that is a flat-out true statement. He didn't become less than God. He became more than God. He became God-man. I say that because how does this give us hope? Here's how. Because as only God, Jesus could not die. You can't kill God. Because he's spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Amen? And as only man, he could not die with any power to save us. But as God-man, he could do both. He could die in love and rise in power. Which means our sins can be forgiven. Everything he claimed was true. Hallelujah. The theology of Jesus Christ gives me robust hope that everything I've believed is true. It is certain. I have every expectation of it, whether it happens today or tomorrow. His coming again, that is. It gives us hope. One more thing and we're done. The characters around Jesus' birth give us hope. Now, we're not going to have the time to go through all of those characters, but there's a cavalcade of them, are there not? From Zechariah, the priest in the temple. You remember that story? He's in there. He's in the temple. He's, his lot has come upon him. He's so excited. He's praying there. He's right next to that curtain where the Holy of Holies is at. He's offering up incense. He's talking to God. Oh, God, I'd love to have a son. I'd love to have a son. Would you give me a son? Boom! The angel Gabriel is stand, standing right in front of him. Hey, God has heard your prayers. You're going to have a son. And he looks at the angel Gabriel. He says, 
yeah, but how do I know this is going to take place? Wrong reply. And boom, he's mute for the next nine months as his wife becomes pregnant to give birth to John the Baptist. And here is this unbelieving Zechariah who becomes believing at the point of naming of John when he takes the tablet and he writes his name is John. And boom, he can, he can speak again. And people see this and he bursts forth with one of five Christmas hymns within the narratives of the Gospels. It's so hope-filling to me because I can be just like him. You see great things, you've had great things happen, and yet you sort of doubt God once in a while. He was unbelieving until he was believing. And then there's Joseph, who sort of plays this minor role, but not an insignificant role. Joseph, who's there in the early part, we see him believing, obeying, and raising Jesus in the early years, and then he just sort of dis disappears from the scene. He's, he's never there in the adult life of Jesus. We assume that he dies. Why? I take it his role was over. He wasn't needed anymore. Can you take that? Listen, that gives me hope to know that whether my role is a major role or whether my role is a minor role, I'm just thank, thankful to God I have a role. And then it's off. And I'm out of here because God buries his workers, but the work goes on. And so it was with Joseph, and that gives me hope. And Mary, while acknowledging her need for a Savior, nevertheless believed that very same angel that Zacharias doubted. She believed him. So let it be done. And she breaks forth with another one of those Christmas hymns and the Mary Magnificat gives me hope. The shepherds give me hope. They, they, they remind us once again that God loves to both bring and spread his good news to those who are the dirge of society. And that's exactly what shepherds were. They were the dirge of society. Nobody would listen to a shepherd. No, their, their testimonies weren't even... Their, Nobody would even allow their testimony in a court of law. They were so filthy, and not just physiologically, and they just they weren't to be trusted. But here God appears to shepherds. He brings them good news, and through them spreads good news, and I totally relate to the shepherds. That's so me. I'm just a filthy shepherd that got saved. God delighted in bringing good news to so he could spread his good news, and I'm all about that. That gives me hope. You might be thinking right now, you know, I'm just nobody. Who am I? I don't have a great education. Not real good with words. You know, don't have, you know, what, and it doesn't matter. God wants to bring his good news to you and not just to stop there, but spread his good news through you. That gives me hope. That should give you hope. The wise men who show the determination of faith as they followed the God star for those years when they saw it in the east in the hope of discovering the Christ child. And then there's Simeon. And that's where we end this morning with Simeon. I love this guy. I love Simeon. He's the old guy that comes into the temple and snatches the baby out of the arms of Mary and prophesies. I love this guy. 
I love this guy so much, I wrote a play about this guy. I, you've never heard of the play? It wasn't that good. Didn't win any awards. But this guy was so full of the very meaning of this word hope. He was promised by God that he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord's Christ. Can you imagine that kind of promise? I mean, there's, there's, there's tradition that says he was over 100 years old. There's no way of knowing. But can you imagine he's over 100 years old? His wife says, you know, honey, you need to take care of that gold. No matter, honey. Doesn't matter. I'm not dying before I see Jesus. <laughs> he comes in takes Jesus out of the arms of Mary and holds that baby up and says, Now, sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. Why? As you promised. I've seen your salvation. I've, I am completely fulfilled. My hope has been seen. Simeon could not die until he saw Jesus. You can't afford to die until you see Jesus with the eyes of faith. It's not going to be your head full of knowledge that's going to save you. It's not going to be some lip service you've paid him that's going to save you. It's not going to be the great study you've done on Jesus back in 1984 that's going to save you. It's going to be whether or not your heart is in this thing. Because I'm afraid that some of you are like those priests, those chief priests and scribes that Herod sent off to do the study. Good study, bad results. And that's the reason why we don't see them as figurines in our nativity scenes. Because they were not people of faith even though they had the knowledge. And if that's you, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul who said that it's your heart that you must believe. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. I love the old hymn that concludes, Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. Is there room in yours? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this time that we could look into the hope that you gave to those first century waiters, those who were in darkness who saw the great light and believed. But Lord, this very story also tells us that there were those who knew about it and did not believe. So this story both gives us hope and it gives us warning. I pray for those here, Lord, right now. That's you. You're, we're praying together here. And you, if you would say, I'm one of those individuals, I've studied these things, but it's never been a part of my heart. My heart's not been changed. My life isn't changed. I want my heart to be changed. Then right now, from your heart, believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. Will you believe that? From your heart for the very first time here this morning? 
And follower of Jesus Christ, no matter what struggle you're going through, be encouraged today. Jesus Christ, who is the hope fulfilled, hope seen by those first century people in waiting, is a hope yet to be realized for us. Latch on to that. Grab a hold of those promises with true expectation. And God will change your life, your outlook, and bless you. Lord, I fear for those in this room who their whole life is bottled up in this life. Everything is about this life. Everything, all of their hopes are tied in this life. It's tied to their marriage, tied to their family, tied to their their work, tied to their retirement. And they are not thinking at all of anything beyond this life, and I fear for them because they're not Christians. I pray, Lord, that you would put your hope, your divine hope within many hearts today, Lord, so that people would trust Jesus and see beyond this life, not so as to not enjoy the things you give us in this life, not at all, but to realize how they pale in significance, which the glory which shall be revealed in us. And to that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.